I want to begin uh, by probably like the worst way I could, but by beginning by talking about the life of Brian, which is a parody. Um, it's a parody movie about Jesus Christ, the life of Brian, who becomes the Messiah, the Jesus. Uh, the reason why I want to begin there is it's just as I was reading this passage, I just couldn't get this out of my head, this one scene, uh, incredibly funny scene. I was going to show it, and I just didn't know if I should. So I'm going to kind of relay it back to you. The, the Jewish people of the time are occupied by the Roman government, uh, and the Jews are very nationalistic. They want to get their place back, and so they're meeting together, a group of them, uh, to go and kidnap Caesar's wife with the demands that in two days... Caesar has to dismantle the entire apparatus of the Roman state. That's their demands, okay? So it's all a joke, it's all very funny, and they're meeting together to kind of plot how they're going to get through the aqueduct to get into the palace and to go and see Caesar. Uh, and then John Cleese, who's the leader of this band of brothers, gets together and said, they've bled us white, they've taken everything we had, not just from us, but from our fathers and from our fathers' fathers. And then someone else pops along and goes, and our fathers, 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 and our fathers, fathers, fathers. And it just goes on and on. And he goes, okay, okay, okay. And then he says, what have the Romans ever done for us? Expecting it just to be a rhetorical question, but people reply, oh, the aqueduct. Oh, and the sanitation. Oh, yes, the sanitation. Okay. Yes, remember what the city used to be like, he says. And he says, all right, I grant you the aqueduct and the sanitation. But apart from that, what have the Romans ever done for us? Oh, the roads? Oh, yes, of course the roads. Obviously the roads. But apart from the roads and the aqueduct and the sanitation, what have the Romans ever done for us? Irrigation, medicine, health, education, they all shout. Public baths. And it's safe to walk in the streets now, one replies. All right, all right, all right. Apart from the sanitation, medicine, education, irrigation, public health, roads and a fresh water system, baths and public order, what have the Romans ever done for us? Brought peace, and he goes, shut up. It's an amazing moment, uh, because they're trying to overthrow the government because they think they, you know, government doesn't owe them anything. They're, they're in their land. Uh, and the reason why I bring it up is because there's this kind of feeling when you feel like you are obliged to someone and you don't want to be. You ask the question, you know, what has my boss ever done for me? You know, what has my family ever done for me? Why do I owe them anything? question for you is, who do you owe your life to? Do you have any duties in your life, any obligations, any people you feel like you owe your life to? Well, we're going to see in this passage today that Jesus has a profound teaching, a profound sentence in all reality, in a profound um, altercation. And this sentence is going to really outline and show who we owe our lives to and the demands of who we owe our lives to. So we're going to read the passage. I might just get the heaters turned down a little bit. Is anyone hot? I'm like burning up in here. And it might be just because I'm nervous, but it's also, you know, I don't know. So we're in the book of Mark. So if you want to open your Bible or your Bible app, put your phone on flight mode so you don't get distracted. I know you. I do the same thing. I'll just check my email. Oh, and then suddenly you've missed 10 minutes of the sermon. Flight mode. Mark chapter 12. Here we go. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius. Let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, 
whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar's, but render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Let's pray. Lord, today, would we not just marvel at your son's wisdom, but may we worship him and give our lives to him. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of this message, if you'd like one, and it's actually a three-part kind of series, is Q&A with Jesus, part one. Q&A with Jesus, because uh, if you look at the setting in verse 13, um, we see that there's a group of people, and there's going to be a couple other groups of people over the next couple of weeks, and so I thought we'll just lump it all together, Q&A with Jesus. And today I'm going to look at basically the story in two parts. I couldn't find any other way of doing it. The story, the application. So the story, the application, Q&A with Jesus. So let's look, let's begin going verse by verse. Let's go through the story, kind of get the picture, get the idea. Let's see what's happening. So verse 13, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Let's get the little bit of context because remember Mark is a narrative, so we've got to kind of know what happened before Who's the they that sent him to him? Where is Jesus? What's going on? So this is the last week of Jesus' life, and he's in the temple, okay, with the most holy um, place, the, the spiritual center of Jerusalem. Um, 2,000 years ago, it, it was destroyed in AD 70, and all that's left is one wall. Uh, but it's a temple that was rebuilt by a guy called Herod the Great. And they're in this temple, leading up into the sacred festival of Passover, uh, and Jesus has rocked up a couple of days before, and basically, like, just imagine someone coming into church right now, getting the coffee machines, throwing them over, getting, you know, the screens, smashing them, moving everything out and going, this is meant to be a house of prayer, and you're distracted, getting all of our phones and crushing them underfoot. That's sort of what Jesus did. He, he came into the temple, and they were buying and selling. They, were, they turned this place of worship into a place of commerce into a place of um, making a profit on God. Oh gosh, that's crazy out there. Um, <laughs> he turned it, it was, and it was a really uh, powerful scene, and Jesus goes home, and the, the religious elite, the Sanhedrin, which is the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, uh, and the Sadducees, all the big dogs, all the, the elders of the land, who are the most respected It wasn't tall poppy culture like we have. These guys were actually respected. They had authority. And they meet together and they try and figure out how are we going to get this guy killed? How are we going to get rid of him? And so they sent to him, they sent to Jesus this party that they all came together and they said, by what authority do you do these things? And Jesus kind of masterfully doesn't dodge their question, but he answers back them a question and says, I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. If you tell me the answer to this question, was John the Baptist from God or from man? And by asking that question, he's answering the question. Basically, either Jesus himself is God or he's from man because John the Baptist said that Jesus was from God. So if the John the Baptist was from God, then Jesus was from God. And if Jesus was from God, he has authority. They don't answer because they realize the position they've been put in and they go away. Jesus then tells this parable which basically condemns all these same guys as murderers um, and as anti-God. And that's what we saw last week with the parable of the tenants. Uh, And so what we have is a scene where these guys, the rulers, the authority, the bigwigs, are being challenged by this peasant out from Nazareth of Galilee, uh, from Galilee rather. And they don't like it. And so they've already kind of lost round one. And so they get together a new band and they go, okay, what are we going to do this time? And so verse 13 says, and they sent to him 
some of the Pharisees, and some of the Herodians. So it would be like the equivalent of, you know, being called in to work on Monday, tomorrow morning, and the CEO and the CFO are there, or your principal and the vice principal. And, you're, you know, for me, I'd be pretty scared. Uh, but for Jesus, he stands tall. He's not afraid because he knows his authority. He knows his righteousness. Uh, and so they come to him, these, these two people, the, the Pharisees and the Herodians. And it's really interesting that those two are sent because they're enemies. You see, we, we know a little bit about the Pharisees. Literally, it means the separated ones. Uh, they were a group of religious uh, Jewish people who had quite a lot of power because they were very holy. They lived out the law. They memorized the Old Testament. They knew lots about God. And they separated themselves from anyone who wasn't really holy. So very different to the way we do church now. We say, anyone can come, come as you are, everyone come in. Back then, they were like, unless you can measure up, don't even come. So we know the Pharisees, and they don't really like Jesus. We've met them lots of times. But then there's another group called the Herodians. We met them in chapter 3. In fact, they had already planned to kill Jesus. They've been waiting a long time. But the Herodians are a group of people who uh, were attached to the dude called Herod. Uh, they were trying to promote the Herodian family dynasty. So they'd sort of accommodated Rome. In, in some ways, they'd given up on God being the ruler of Jerusalem. And they're like, well, we've got second best. We'll have Herod. We'll get alongside of him. And if we're close to Herod, then we'll have power too. So you can imagine that the Pharisees are all about God, all about the law, all about being pure and separate. And the Romans were dirty and unclean, so get away from them. And the Herodians are like, let's get on board with the Romans. And so these two guys are fighters. They don't like each other, but they find a common enemy. And it brings them, to, sorry, brings them together, and that's Jesus. And their purpose, if you see in verse 13, is to trap him in his talk. Literally, the word is a hunting term, to trap him, to catch him. I, I think, and they wouldn't have had this back then, but I think of like a bear trap, you know, with a massive claws, and boom, they're trying to get him. To trap him. Why do they want to trap him? Why are they after Jesus? Well, the Herodians, they fear political instability. They fear that Jesus is going to come and make a riot basically happen, a protest. He's going to, he's going to stir the pot. Things are pretty settled. We're, we're good with Herod. Herod's good with us. We have our position. And Jesus is sort of like this radical, this unknown quantity. So they want to squash him to keep their lives safe and secure and to keep their position. And the Pharisees, why do they want to trap Jesus? Well, they're going to lose their spiritual authority. They're going to lose their place in the land if Jesus is this great teacher. And so they want to get rid of him. Let's pause for a second. Question for us, for me, for you. What are your fears with Jesus? Are there any areas of your life that you don't want him to touch? Where do you want to silence Jesus? The Herodians had their reasons. The Pharisees have theirs. What about you? Do you want to silence Jesus in any way? Well, let's look at verse 14. You can see what their trap is. So they're setting their trap and it says, And they came to him and said to him, You can kind of feel the, the false flattery the honey kind of dripping from their lips. Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances but truly teach the way of God. Now, I'm putting on a voice there to kind of mimic what I think their heart is. I don't know how they actually said it. They might have said it. They might have meant it. Probably not. Definitely not. Um, <laughs> but the irony is is that their flattery about Jesus' faithfulness and truthfulness is true. And their flattery about being true reveals their hypocrisy. See, they're saying, Jesus, you're really true. You're not swayed by man's appearances. And here they are, afraid of man's appearances and afraid of what's happening and speaking lies. They don't believe he's true. And so there's this double irony happening in their statement. And their flattery ends up proving to be a true statement. Yeah, Jesus really was someone who didn't care about someone's opinion. I wish I was like that. 
I spend so much of my life caring about what people think of me, but yet Jesus stands tall. He knows who he is. He knows who his God is. He knows where he's come from. I'm more like the Pharisees and Herodians, thinking about what do people think about me, and maybe you're like that too. So here's their question, verse 14, the rest of verse 14. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? You can imagine this question, what's happening here? It's like being in a courtroom. You know, you see those great shows like Law and Order or Suits or um, even I was watching A Few Good Men, the movie. And basically what always happens, the dramatic moment in a courtroom is when the lawyer is trying to get the witness or the accused to say something that they shouldn't, to lead them down a path and to make them prove them either innocent or false or, or guilty or whatever, to make them not look good. And that's exactly what they're doing. They've got Jesus, they think, on the middle of a cliff and they're trying to make him fall off either side because this question, should we pay taxes to Caesar, is not something that we ever really care about. We, I mean, we care about it because we don't want to pay taxes, but we don't ever think, is it godly to pay taxes? Should I set up my own nation-state um, where I don't have to pay taxes. We don't often think that, but for them it was a hot-button issue. It would be like same-sex marriage debate for us today. Everyone wanted to know the answer to this question because the Romans were there, but they believed God should have been the ruler of their nation. They believed they should have had a king, and so do we give money to this false king, this false God? Do we participate in his rule, or do we withdraw from the state, from the benefits of Rome, and have our own king. Which is why many times in Jesus' life, they, they kind of push him to the front and like, we want you to be our king. Because they actually do want to step up, set a different nation state. So it's a hot topic issue. This is their land. To pay tax is offensive to them. They're trying to put Jesus in an either-or situation, a lose-lose. Either you pay your tax to Caesar and it means the crowd will leave you. Either he has to say, yes, we've got to pay our taxes to Caesar because the crowd wants a rebel. The crowd wants a new ruler. The crowd loves a vigilante and they're following Jesus a little bit. They're kind of getting to know him because he's just come to Jerusalem and if he says, yes, pay taxes to Caesar, then he's weak. It's not fun. Like if Donald Trump just got up and started saying, let's just be nice and um, we'll just kind of keep going how we're going. No one would be following him. It's because he's a, an aggressor. He's like, you're wrong. This is bad. We're going to take over. We're going to make America great again. Because he's like that, people are like, yeah, let's do it. Let's get on board. So the crowds are going to leave Jesus. So he falls off the cliff on that side if he says, yes, pay the tax. But then, so that's what the... Um, the Herodians want him to say, yes, let's pay the tax, because that quells their fear of political instability. But the Pharisees over here, well, they don't think we should pay the tax, although they do do it. But they want him to say, no, don't pay the tax. They want him to be the vigilante, because then they can say to Caesar or his pontiff, um, Pilate, and say, he's a rebel. You've got to get rid of him. See, they're trying to make Jesus fall off the cliff on either side with a cleverly crafted either or question, a lose-lose. So they think. Let's look at the reversal in verse 15. Jesus kind of takes their mask off. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Uh, that, that word hypocrisy is a Greek acting word. Literally, they would, in their theater, in ancient times, they would put on a mask and play different characters like, um, Poncinello and things like that if you've ever studied drama and that mask would represent a certain type of person well Jesus is saying take your mask off why are you putting me to the test this is a trap he's very perceptive have you ever walked into a trap question have you ever walked into a thing and you realize oh I just totally said the wrong thing and that's what they wanted me to say um, well Jesus didn't which is good um, and then he kind of 
goes along with this acting thing and he builds the tension. So look at the rest of the verse. Why put me to the test? Question. Command. Notice his authority. Because <laughs> this whole section, this whole passage, this whole theme is authority. He says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. The tension's building. You see, they're having a conversation. It's sort of like, I, again, I'm bad TV references, but I think this is sort of like Jerry Springer um, or Maury Povich or something. And they're trying to trap, they're trying to see, are you the father or are you not the father? And it's like, let's bring out the pregnancy test. You know, that's the moment. That's what's happening. Jesus is like, go get the denarius. And everyone's waiting. They're like, what's going to happen? Why, why the denarius? What's going to happen? Worst example ever. But you get what I'm saying. Now, finally, Jesus doesn't have a denarius on him, nor do his disciples. But somehow the Pharisees are able to produce one. Might be something in that, maybe not. But in any case, a denarius is worth a day's worth of wages. Um, and if you're an ancient person, you're primarily living day to day. Uh, and so to give a day's wage, or to have a coin with a day's wage, is a fairly sizable thing um, for a labourer. And they produce this denarius. Now, interestingly, I'll show you a picture of what a denarius looks like. And it's very important we know this. It's lovely that we have some old coins. Because on this denarius is a picture of Caesar, so Tiberius Caesar. And on the other side is a picture of his mother. Look at the inscription. Tiberius Caesar Augustus. It's a good name. And the son of the divine Augustus. I.e., my dad is Augustus, and he's divine, which means he's God, and I'm his son. I am the son of God. And on the other side, which I don't have, but it says Livia, chief priest. So you've got this coin, a coin which says, I am the son of God, my mother is the high priest. And Jesus is standing there. And look at verse 17. Or the rest of verse 16, sorry. He basically holds up this coin. And he says to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And obviously, they say, Caesar's. Tension is building. What's he going to say? What's the result going to be? And Notice the amazing wisdom. Incredible wisdom in this moment. Verse 17. Traps the trappers. Jesus said to them, render, which is a word which, which means give, not rendering like in a house, but render, which means give. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Drop the mic, walk off. <laughs> Seriously, though, that, that, that's what happens. I was out the other week with one of my best mates, and um, <laughs> you know, I was, I was, I don't know. We just heard all these yelling and cheering, and we walked over underneath a bridge, and there's all these people doing dancing to music, and they're kind of having a dance off. It's like, whoa, they're going for it. And every time someone did a sick move, someone would go, oh, like that. That's one of those moments where Jesus is going. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, God to God is to God's what is God's. Drop the mic. Everyone goes, oh, leaves the room. Everyone's like, what? <laughs> now, the reason why it is actually just one of those drop the mic moments is because they gave him an either or. They wanted him to fall off the cliff on this side or this side, and he stands firm. He says, both and. Both and. They didn't realize there was a third option. You see, as he holds up the coin, the coin which says Caesar is the son of God, what he's saying is he's, he's assuming the right for government to have their place, to rule, to reign, to collect tax. Caesar's coin, Caesar's government, therefore give it to him. Jesus is assuming that there's a role for government, that there is a due obligation that we have to our government. Even if 
even if they're like Caesar and they claim that they're God. They overreach. They do immoral things. Jesus doesn't say, give to Caesar if Caesar is a good guy. No, he's holding a coin, an idolatrous coin, which says Caesar is God, and he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But then, then, this is brilliant, he says, and to God the things that are God's. Implication? Caesar, you might call yourself a God, but you're not the God. Give to God the things that are God's. Caesar gets his money, but God gets a whole life. Caesar, you have your place, you get your taxes, but you are under God. God has given you this authority. And I think just, by the, by the way, I think there's a little political lesson we can learn here. I mean, I've been following the Trump-Hillary thing a little bit. You see, the Pharisees and the Herodians are getting stuck in an either-or controversy. And we can too sometimes, I think, as the church and as Christians and just whatever you believe, as humans, we we get into these either-or, left or right, labor or liberal, conservative, progressive, Trump, Hillary, Shorten, Turnbull. And sometimes we even think that there's a a Christian way to vote, or, or the only, there's only one way. But what Jesus actually gives us here is a really interesting political point, which is that we can both affirm and deny aspects of leaders and government. Jesus affirms Caesar's right to rule, but denies his claim of divinity. And I think in there, there is some truth for us with politics. We can affirm some parties and what they believe, and deny that same party and what they believe at the same time. There is no Christian way to vote. Controversial. Interesting. You can think about it some more. But Jesus shows the both and, the middle ground. It's not completely middle ground because actually what he's doing is he's, he is challenging Caesar. He's not just copping out and going, yeah, give it to Caesar and to God the things that are God. He's going, no, give it to Caesar. God has put him in there. But God is ruler of all, including Caesar. Like that. They thought it was either Caesar or God, either one, both and, both and. And verse 17, their response is they marvel. And they marveled at him. That's it. They're astounded. They weren't expecting that. In Isaiah chapter 11, it says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, i.e. the offspring of Jesse, who is David, and Jesus comes from the line of David, and from his root shall bear fruit. It's a prediction of who the king will be, the real king. And it says this, And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom, and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. Jesus is demonstrating in this moment his authoritative wisdom. Jesus is demonstrating that he really is the Messiah, not because he's going to take over the government, give back Israel its place, but because he's the, he's the stump from which, you know, he's come from Jesse. The spirit of the Lord is upon him. He has a wisdom which wouldn't come from a human person. Many times Jesus is questioned and he never gets stumped once. He always has enough wisdom to get out of it, which is an indication that he is who he says he is from God, the Messiah. So what's the meaning of this whole story? Well, there is a simple meaning, but there's a profound implication for our life. The meaning is this. By distinguishing between civil and divine authority, Jesus demonstrates his authority. He silences his critics, resolves the dilemma. Jesus distinguishes between civil government and divine authority. And by answering the question with wisdom, he demonstrates his authority. And they leave, they marvel. And we could end it here, because it, it really, it's just a cool story. Like, it's a wise story. And in fact, this has had political influence, this one sentence. 
ever since Jesus said it, influenced the separation of church and state that we have today. We could talk about all that, but I think Jesus is actually going to press something deeper into us if you'd be willing to listen. And so I've got um, two points of application. Give to Caesar and give to God. Let's look at each one in turn. So we have the story, we now have the application, and I've got a question for you. Are you giving to Caesar what is Caesar's? Are you giving to the government what is the government's? See, Jesus is actually supporting the right here for government to rule and reign. He's assuming it. And the biblical writers go on, actually later on, to say this in Romans chapter 13. They take what Jesus has said and they develop it even further. If we could get it up on the screen. Romans chapter 13 verse 1 and verses 6 to 7 say, Let every person be subject, that means underneath, to the governing authorities. And then interestingly, For there is no authority except from God and those that have been instituted by God. So we don't have this either or, it's both and, God, but he institutes authority that we have to still sit under. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honour to whom honour is owed. Are you giving to Caesar what is Caesar's? Very direct application question. Are you paying your taxes? In full? Are you cheating? Bending the rules? Uncomfortable question. I want to cheat on my taxes all the time. Like, just to put it out there, I really do. Because I just, like, I want to keep money for myself. <sighs> and I'm, I was actually really convicted of this. Because I, I do often think, oh, maybe I could just make that a deduction. Or maybe, like, my wife's been doing a little bit of other work. I'm like, maybe that doesn't count. Maybe that doesn't have to be lodged. <sighs> but what I'm missing is actually what Jesus is saying, which is, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. You have benefited from Caesar. You, what have the Romans ever done for us? You know, what has the government ever done for me? Why do I have to pay taxes? Well, roads. Your bins are taken out every week. Health, uh, education, everything go on. We benefit from the government. And there's a certain duty we have from God to give back. Are you paying your taxes? If you make all of your tax accountant, He'll make sure you do. <laughs> Faithfully. Because everyone knows that person who has a tax guy who you just go, I just give him my forms and I don't know what happens, but I get thousands of dollars in return. Everyone has that guy. Maybe you're seeing that guy. Well, maybe, maybe you need to find someone who's a good steward and who sits under the authority of government and actually does your taxes properly. And that's a scary thought. It's a scary thought. Are you obeying the rules of government? Do you speed? I'm always tempted to speed when there's no cameras. I'm like, oh, I can speed a little bit here. I'm a, I'm a, pretty, I'm a goody two-shoes, let me tell you. But every now and again, I'm like, it'd be nice to speed right now. I'd love a bit of, I don't want a bit of speed. I'd love to do a bit of speeding. Um, <laughs> but there's a sense in which I don't want to overreach on what Jesus is saying, but I, I think there is an obligation we have, in the, even in the littlest areas, to give to the government what the government has called upon us to do. Fulfilling a building permit properly. Heaps of things, so many things, so many areas where we can skirt around our duty. You can think, oh, you know, my duty is to God. Not to the government. Well, God says, give your duty to the government too. Are you giving to Caesar what is Caesar's? We take the benefit. Are you giving back what is owed?
to the government. It's like a mortgage. We all pay our mortgage because we have to, but we take the benefit of a mortgage, the home that we live in, the apartment that we rent out for investment. We have the benefit, and so we have an obligation to pay back the loan, similar with the government. But is there ever a time to disobey? See, Caesar, I mean, himself says, I'm God. Did Jesus agree with that? Well, there actually are times when, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you might be called to disobey. But they're few and far between in our land and in our country. You see, the disciples who heard this very statement at another time are told by the same guys who were telling Jesus, you know, should we pay taxes? These same guys, the Pharisees and Herodians, the disciples, after Jesus died and rose again, go out and start telling everyone, he died, he rose again, put your faith in him and believe. They arrest them and say, don't tell anyone about this message. Stop talking, be quiet. But they say to the rulers, the Jewish rulers, not Caesar and the government, but they actually say to the Jewish rulers in Acts chapter 5, we must obey God rather than men. There is a time for civil disobedience, but it's only when it directly disobeys a command of God or your conscience. Okay, so our first point of application, a little bit awkward, the, the young guy. I'm not telling you what to do. You do whatever God calls you to do, but you ask the question, I think. Ask the question, am I giving to Caesar what is Caesar's? Am I fulfilling my duty that God has given me? Well, the second point of application is the second authoritative command that Jesus gives us, which is to give to God what is God's. Give to God the things that are God's. Let's just get back into the scene for a moment. Remember, Pharisees, Herodians, Cliff, either side, either or, Jesus says both and, holds up the coin. Whose image and inscription is this? Caesar's. And what's Jesus' reply? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. The coin bears the image of Caesar, the image, I want you to focus on that word, the image of Caesar, and therefore it belongs to him. But here's an incredible and profound point, an implication of what Jesus is saying. Just as the coin bears the image of Caesar, and we should render to him, Jesus says, and give to God the things that are God's, what does that mean? Well, your body bears the image of God and therefore belongs to him. The coin bears the image of Caesar. Give him your coin. But your very body bears the image of God. In Genesis chapter 1, the first book of the Bible, we meet God who's there in the beginning before creation he creates everything, however it happens. And then chapter 1, verse 27, says this. So God created man in his image, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. not a narrative we really actually want, is it? We live in an individualist, self-governed, do-what-you-want-to-do-what's-best-for-you kind of culture. And, and I feel that. You know, we, want to do, we don't want someone else to tell us what to do. We don't want to belong to someone else. We're our own person. Many people's journeys is, is leaving their parents and finding out who they really are and then making their own choices for who they are. And, and there is a place for that. There is a place for that, to be sure. But the doctrine of creation, the, the Bible teaches that you and I are made by God, for God. We are his image bearers. Whether you follow Jesus or not, whether you believe in God or not, the image of God, the likeness of God, somehow, in some way, is you is in you we reflect image the word 
image. We reflect God, not in our physical appearance. It's not that. God is not in heaven. He does not look like a human being. He's a spirit. He has no body. But you and I are like God. And it's a really hard concept. There's heaps of theological debate. But in some way it means that just as God is creative, so are we creative. Just as God is relational, so are we relational. Just as God works, we work. Just as God is spirit, we have a spirit. You have a soul. You're not just a body. You have a soul, the Bible teaches. And your soul bears the image of God and therefore belongs to him. It's not yours. It's God's. So my second application question is this. Are you giving to God what is God's? Namely, everything. Your whole life. I don't think anything could be tougher. I don't think anything could be more demanding. I don't think anything, in some respects, could be more offensive. Give to God what is God's. It's not just like Sunday morning. That's my God time. It's not your quiet time. It's not even your tithe. It's not going to life group. It's not becoming a minister. It's not becoming a missionary. The application of this verse is not, I have to give up my job and give my life away to God. The application of this verse is, at the very core of your being, you are owned by God and you have a duty to him and you belong to him. He's your maker. And so how are you going to live in light of that in every area of your life, from nine to five and in your sleep and at home as a mother, as a father, as a parent, as a single, as a sick person, as a banker, as a builder, as an electrician, every moment of your life. Jesus commands us, give to God what is God's. Where are you holding back? Is there any area, maybe it's on your heart right now, is there any area? You know it perhaps. You're holding that back. Don't touch that, God. Please, I'll follow you if I, if I can just keep this part as my own sovereign little world. Maybe you don't want God to touch your finance. Maybe you don't want God to influence who your friends are or what you do with your career or what you do on a Sunday Maybe you feel like, even, even in a Sunday morning, you feel like, I've done my bit, God, I came. I'm not going to engage. I'm here. I've done my thing. Maybe you don't want God to take control of your life because you're afraid, and I get that fear. I get that fear. I have it. I have it too. It's offensive. Give to God what is God's my whole life. But the reality is this. If God is our creator, if that doctrine is true, then all of our life belongs to him anyway. It's like taxes. If you earn money, you owe them to the government. Whether you give them or not, you still owe them to him. You were born, and the God of all creation, the God of everything, the eternal God, actually put you together somehow. And he owns you in some respect. And your life, your breath, your movement, your being, your motivations, your money, your time, your effort, your energy, your career, your calling, your time at home, belongs to him as an expression of worship, as an expression of gratitude. It's not, it's not anger and frustration or get to God what is God's. It's glad submission because he's the giver he gave you life he gave you breath every dollar you've ever earned he gave it to you every day you've ever lived he gave it to you he gave it he's a giving god genesis 1 is all about the god who gives and he gives life and breath and being and he gave it to you and so your duty is to give it back to him is there any area of your life which you are saying no not that Third question. Have you given your life to God? Have you been coming to church for a long time or never before until today? 
Have you ever given your life to God? Have you ever actively stepped out and said, take my life. It's yours. You tell me what to do. I put my faith in you. I'm not trusting in myself. I'm not going to govern myself anymore. Have you ever done that? Well, Jesus said earlier in Mark's Gospel, in chapter 8, he said, whoever wants to follow me must deny himself and take up his cross. Whoever wants to gain the whole world will lose his soul, but whoever loses his soul Whoever loses his life, rather, for my sake, and the gospel will save it. Have you ever given your life to God? Why not do it today? Youth, have you ever given your life to God? Mums, have you actually given your life to God? Dads, workers, retirees, whoever's in this building, have you given your life to God? And the reality is this. We have a duty to him, but we can never pay it. You can never give everything back. You can't pay God back. You can't do it. Jesus is giving us a command which is too lofty for us to attain. Give to God what is God's your whole life. I have not done that. Not even today, let alone my entire life, and nor have you. But Jesus saying this very sentence sets him on a path. See, by saying this very sentence, they walk away and they get together and they're planning, how can we arrest him? How can we kill him? And that's exactly what happens. Within the rest of the week, Jesus leaves this conversation. He's arrested, sentenced to public execution and dies on a cross. And do you know why Jesus died on the cross? You may have wondered this. He died on the cross because you and I have a debt to God our very life and you can't pay it you can never pay him back because you've wronged him so many times i've wronged him so many times and jesus went to the cross for you you have a tax debt to god and jesus on the cross pays the debt in full isn't that incredible Give to God what is God's. You can't do it. He calls you to render your life to him. You can't do it. But the one who calls you to render your life to him has rendered his life already unto God. He died on the cross. He gave his life. And so that sets you free because he doesn't call you to do something he hasn't already done. You can give your life to him because he's already given his life for you. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that the most amazing news in the world? May it affect your soul. May you live in glad submission to the one who gave it all. Imagine today if I said, I'll pay your tax bill this year. I'll pay it. 30 grand, whatever it is. 100 grand for some. 10 grand for others. I'll pay it. But imagine if I said to you, no, no, not only this year, but all your tax bills from previous, I'll reimburse you. Imagine if we take it further. Not only today's tax bill, that's due probably end of month, like next week. Not only all your tax bills from this year's life, but all your future tax bills, I will pay them in full today. That's millions of dollars. You'd be incredibly over the moon. If you could perceive the debt you owe to God, and you could perceive that he paid it in full, the joy in your heart, the freedom, the worship. Wouldn't it be incredible? If you would truly perceive that he gave his life, then you will just say, take my life, let it be, ever, only, all for thee. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God. Gladly submit your life under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Secure your eternity and live every day with purpose and meaning and significance because every day is an opportunity to render to God what is God's. May your life, may your prayer be, take my life and let it be ever, only, all for thee. Because... Jesus paid 
it all. Ah, it's the best. It's the best. It's the best. Let's pray. Lord, we lay our lives down. We submit. Be our Lord. By your Holy Spirit, give us faith. Jesus, you paid it all. May we gladly give our lives back to you every breath, every day, all our hopes, all our dreams, all our work, all our play. God, you must move now in our soul because we cannot change our hearts. You must move, Lord. Don't let us hold on to our life. Break into our life now. Please, Lord God. Don't let me live for myself. Don't let my friends here live for themselves. Perhaps in this moment, some of you need to pray. And you need to give your life to God. Do it today. Pray this. Lord, take my life. I give it all to thee because you gave it all for me. Give us a song to sing right now, Lord Jesus. Amen.